Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell, live from Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from New York. She is the former attorney for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. She is the one we know as Sharmila Chari. Hey, Sharmila. Hey, Justin. And joining us from Florida, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the one we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? Great. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, well, we've got, a, we've got a lot to cover. It has been a busy week in politics. Let's start off with the big ticket item. Uh, and, of course, we're expecting the others to join us here shortly. But big ticket item this week. Uh, For those who don't know, the President of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, has in fact nominated one Brett Kavanaugh, who currently currently serves on the bench in the U.S. Federal District Court of the District of Columbia. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh went before the full Senate Judiciary Committee for confirmation, and after the confirmation hearings kind of died down or closed, Senator Dianne Feinstein received a letter, the Democrat from California, with information about an accusation uh, back back on July 30th, well before the beginning of these hearings in the Judiciary Committee. However, after the committee hearings were uh, suspended or closed, they then come to find out that this letter does exist and it accuses Judge Kavanaugh of uh, questionable, questionable behavior, we'll put it that way, uh, sexual or not, that occurred over 35 years ago while Judge Kavanaugh was in high school. This has caused all kinds of consternation here in the nation's capital, both on Capitol Hill, inside the White House. Judicial scholars are pulling their hair out. This, in fact, is now a big deal. Uh, Sharma, let me start with you. You know, We talked last week about the judicial standing of Brett Kavanaugh. We've heard largely from everybody that would possibly come against him, but nobody really had anything too horrible to say. The Bar Association came in support of him. Uh, We've heard uh, positive endorsements. We saw a wide-ranging who's who of Republican backers in the back bench during his hearing. The question is, this coming out now, 
does this reflect poorly on Kavanaugh, or does this reflect poorly on Democrats on judiciary? I think there's no reason it can't be both. Um, Do they have to be mutually exclusive? They don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? Obviously, from a Republican perspective, the timing is quite suspect. If you look at it from the victim, she penned a letter in, I believe, June. So that was several months ago. And, you know, that slowly made its way to uh, first a representative from her district and then to Senator Feinstein, who's the senator, senior senator from California, also a member of the, judici- the Judiciary Committee. And, you know, the reason that Senator Feinstein hadn't elevated it to the larger Judiciary Committee yet, you know, and had done so sort of at the 11th hour prior to the vote is still a mystery. Uh, you know, at, at the beginning, there was still a lot of questions about whether or not the senator wanted to advance the allegation, considering that the woman who is um, making this allegation had originally wanted to remain anonymous and then therefore, you know, would not be available for cross-examination or, you know, questioning from from the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now that's changed as the woman has identified herself and penned an op-ed, making her accusation public. So I think that there's still a lot of questions that Senator Feinstein needs to answer about the timing of this of this letter and, and this accusation. And I think that we will obviously get more answers on Monday when both uh, Judge Kavanaugh and his accuser, um, Ms. Ford, are scheduled to testify in front of the Senate. And we're going to get to that here shortly. Uh, joining us on the phone, as he does on every Tuesday, a little better late than never, he's the former Undersecretary of Commerce that served at last under four President, he is the longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, man we know as Alan Moore. Alan, uh, let me go to you on this one. This is an accusation that apparently uh, Professor Ford has been wrestling with since this occurred at a high school here in the metropolitan Washington area. Why is it now? Because this is not the first time that's that Judge Kavanaugh has gone in front of a Senate confirmation. Why now? And does this hurt the Democrats as to making it look like a political hit job? Well, <laughs> I think the why now has to do with uh, the extraordinarily high level of visibility of this particular uh, nomination, the stakes involved, um, and, and the fact that it was only six years ago that uh, the accuser for the first time uh, opened up about it, um, apparently with her husband and and in some counseling. So uh, according to her, and I, I have no reason to doubt it, that you know whatever happened uh, was something she buried away. There's nothing uncommon about that in, 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 uh, in my uh, experience and understanding. Um, the, uh, so you take the combination, she buried it, buried it, buried it, buried it, and then it emerged um, for whatever set of reasons, of, according to reports, uh, some problems in the marriage. Um, and, uh, and then you have this extraordinarily high visibility, the high stakes, the anger uh, among uh, Democrats about the process and, and how it's being uh, rammed through how Merrick Garland was treated, all the issues we're, we're, we're so familiar with. So 
if uh, she believes, uh, uh, I mean, she believes this happened um, and felt now is the time to tell it. Uh, her desire to, to maintain confidentiality is not surprising. She has some understanding of the stakes, the, the life-changing stakes that can occur uh, for accusers. Um, whether they're found to be credible or not, um, suddenly she's a public figure that we will learn about. Uh, people will be digging into her history, threatening her. Who knows what all is going to go on? It's it, it's just uh, really, really sad. As for the Democrats, you know, I, I don't have a huge quarrel with Feinstein. I, I, a quarrel, yes. I think she would have been wise to have shared this sooner um, with uh, with with uh, the chairman um, and with the full committee with the FBI. Um, but she was trying to honor the desire of this person to to maintain confidentiality. Um, but remember the accuser wrote this in a letter to her congressman. So, uh, her, uh, Anna issue. Um, so, so, you know, she, she was well aware that by, you know, that by, by, by putting it in writing and sharing it with, uh, uh outside right. of somebody outside of her control, that there was a chance it would be, be public, but she also kind of wanted it, to be part of the discussion. So you, it's one of those things you can't really have it both ways. And I think that's what, 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 what uh, Senator Feinstein might've, you know, lost, uh, uh, lost track of, even as she was trying to, to respect the woman's desire for confidentiality. Right. Ad, Admiral Ken, does, does this put Senate judiciary or Republicans in an awkward spot? I mean, it's not like the Republican party can't exactly alienate women any more than it possibly has. I mean, does does this really put them in an awkward spot as far as playing the he said, she said card versus discounting the accounts of somebody who may have been assaulted in a sexually inappropriate manner? I think the the optic of uh, an all-male Republican um, um, cross-examination does not bode well for the party. I mean, uh, I, I think I think I think we've already lost um, the the vote of most uh, most voting women right now because of President Trump's antics. And I think if anything, this has a huge opportunity to just put a nail in the coffin, so to speak. Uh, back back to something that Alan w- was saying, or I want to comment about something Alan said. Um, Given Senator, Senator Feinstein's position um, and having been in a number of leadership roles where, um, where questionable charges um, have, have uh, been made against people on, on, on my staff or uh, in my uh, area of responsibility, um, I think probably the right thing for her to have done was to immediately, upon finding out about it, uh, pick up the phone and um and, and call the other uh, chairman of the judiciary committee with the hey I'm hearing this um this may go nowhere it may it, it may it may not uh go anywhere at all but uh you need to know that this is that this is is out there and I'll try and get more information um you know I I, I will I, I am too closely associated um 
with people in my my circle of family and friends who have been victims of, of one form of, of assault, sexual assault, to ever let someone um, get away with questioning with questioning a victim as to why didn't they come forward when? Because most people can't understand that victimology, but it is certain, and there's a certain level of shaming that goes in there, and no one should ever be second-guessed on when they decide to step up and say something. That said, uh, Diane Feinstein and her role uh, needed to basically make sure that the process uh, was going to go forward in a completely enlightened manner versus give the appearance that the Democrats were waiting to throw a, uh, a hand grenade in at the end, which is something President Trump, who we know doesn't give a rat's butt about women anyway, is claiming. Charlotte, I mean, I'm going to go back to the question I asked earlier to you. I mean, does this is not the first time that Judge Kavanaugh has gone in front of Senate Judiciary. What, does the timing on this hurt her credibility a little bit? Not, not, and, and, and please understand that I am not trying to victim shame or anything. This is a horrible situation all the way around. Anytime this comes up, particularly this politically charged, but does the timing on this? hurt well, Democrats in their efforts and does the fact does it hurt the credibility of the case? So Justin, are you when you say this is not the first time he's gone up before the Senate Judiciary Committee, are you talking about his confirmation to be a circuit court judge? Yeah. Yes. I mean, Justin, that's I think that's a bit of a, a ridiculous question considering the fact that the nominations of judges to the Federal Court of Appeals are not national news. They're not on the front page of CNN. Very few people other than, you know, legal scholars and people who are deeply into uh, judicial politics follow those nominations. I don't think that it would be at all reasonable for a woman to, you know, or anyone to be monitoring the whereabouts of a someone she barely knew in high school, you know, 35 years later to see whether or not he was being nominated, you know, for the federal bench and on the Senate Judiciary Committee and, you know, going before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I think that the fact that Brett Kavanaugh's name was plastered all over the front page of every single major news organization when he was nominated to the Supreme Court is, I'm sure, the first time, you know, Christine Blasley Ford saw his face and realized what he was doing with his life all these years now and thought, oh, my God. I remember that guy. He's the guy that, you know, supposedly tried to attack me in high school. And that's what prompted her to to write this letter to her representative. I, I, I don't think that it's at all reasonable to think that she would have known about his nomination when he was nominated to the circuit court all those years ago. Alan Moore, is that a valid – should that be a valid argument to Republicans on Senate Judiciary? Well, so so I have a slightly different take than Charmel. I think I, 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 my my conclusion is pretty much the same. Only the the, the difference is in is in what what there, there have been reports that when she first started talking about it in 2012, that uh, she did tell a couple of other people and said, "This guy is a federal judge, and people talk about him as a possibility for the Supreme Court." So, uh, and, and remember, he was turned down in 2004, the first time uh, he was nominated, um, and and then it was a couple of years later that that he he got through. He had more visibility than most, and people they were both from, 
you know, fancy neighborhoods in, in Bethesda, Maryland, it, it's entirely possible that, that there was some awareness um, uh, on her part, but that doesn't, that he, what, what he was up to, and then that he might, might be a, a possible candidate for the Supreme Court. But, but even so, that's not reason enough for her to come forward at that time. It's as Sharmila did say, and as I tried to say in the beginning, circuit courts, court of appeals is really different than the Supreme Court in terms of level of understanding, visibility, and if she's just coming to grips with something that 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 uh, that she believes happened to her a long time ago, I can see a step by step process, echoing sort of Ken Ken's comment about people who are victims tend to to keep quiet about it they feel shameful they wonder if they did something they don't know what to do and then as time passes um and the details may get a little foggy um and they've sort of figured out how to how to live with it um but at the same time they're more comfortable with themselves as human beings um and then if they see high stakes um and if they start talking about it in a in a in a the context of with a spouse and and with a with a mental health professional, you know, I I, I don't have any problem with her silence before her coming out now. Just as a concept, it doesn't mean I believe her. I don't know if I believe her. I might believe her. I want to see her uh, next Monday in the committee, and I want to see what she says. I want to see. Uh, whether I find it credible in uh, for, for my own self, and then I want to see what Kavanaugh says. Um, I feel sick for both of them because she obviously went through something that has been plaguing her, and it may well be something that 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 Kavanaugh right. uh, did to her. Uh, right. And and he has led, by all measure, a highly exemplary life, um, and 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 I don't know whether he did this thing or not when he was, you know, I'll mention drunken seventeen-year-old, which doesn't forgive it, but it gives it some context, um, and 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 maybe he did. And maybe he didn't. He's he's going to say it never happened. He has already said that quite clearly a couple of times. Um, so I think his position is pretty much locked down. Um, doesn't mean he won't get questioned. Um, she's going to tell her story. She will get questioned, not by eleven member male members of the committee. The committee is looking for a credible female to do the questioning on behalf of the majority. That doesn't mean doesn't the other mean, members of the majority no, well, might me, not ask a question or two. Let me interject there. Let me interject there. It, yep. You know, obviously the Republicans don't have a lot of standing as far as, uh, or the entire committee itself doesn't have a lot of standing as far as female inclusion on that committee. You have but maybe a few that are on judicial the, the, if they do this, if they have a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski uh, take the chair or take point on questioning Dr. Ford, 
does no, it won't does, be them. But go ahead. Or, or any. Mikowski's already said. Mikowski's already said no. Yeah, I, no, I mean, they're not going to get. They're not doing that. They may get somebody like Kelly Ayotte, a former senator, well respected, or they may bring in. You, there may be a council on the on. But even if they get somebody else, Alan, I mean, just having a female run point on ju- on judiciary who's not a member of judiciary, does does that not just give bad optics for the Republicans? It, it, it almost seems like you're overcompensating your misogyny. They're getting the token. Well, okay. No, I'm not buying the misogyny comment, but but it it, it what it does is is it may be better than having a free for all. With with eleven different guys, or even two or three different people, I think that the Republicans are going to spend some concentrated, focused attention on how to manage this process. And it's not going to be okay. Everybody, take turns. Let's beat her up because she must be lying. I think it's going to be somebody with a light hand, and whether it's a female, like a former senator, like Kelly Ayotte, a female staff uh, lawyer. Or just a a a member of the committee who is the designated questioner who the who the 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 Republicans as a committee believe to be the 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 best questioner under these unfortunate okay. me, circumstances. Sharmila, let me get your ask, let me get your point of view on this. Does having an outside female come in and serve as the the questioner, the inquisitor, does, does that not just send back optics to not only the committee, but to Republicans on the committee? In, I'm not sure I understand your question. In, in what way would that send bad optics to the committee? It, 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 like I said, it, it, and, and Alan discounted it and, it, and it may be just a straw man, but it, it almost seems like Senate Judiciary is saying they're overcompensating for their misogyny. Oh, so, I mean, but you keep so saying I, misogyny. I, I Come I, on. Right. I, I would agree with Alan there. I don't know that it's misogyny per se, but it certainly would highlight their lack of representation. The fact that there are no female Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee would be thrown into stark relief. And that's something that obviously women would pick up on and think about when voting in the November midterms. So to to that extent, I think, yes, it does sort of highlight the lack of if you want to call it diversity, um, whether it's gender diversity or sort of lack of differing perspectives on the Judiciary Committee, I, I do think that you are right that bringing in a female who is not a member of that panel is going to just highlight the fact that there are no qualified women on that panel to be doing the questioning. Admiral Ken? Um, I, I, I hate to say this, but I, I think it smacks of tokenism. I think I think that if there's a woman um, that uh, falls into the category of the type that Alan has described, uh, that would step up and do that. I think that it would only exacerbate an already difficult situation. I think it'll it would it, I think I think as bad as the optics are of of, of an all male Inquisition panel um, is. I think that would make it even worse. Just tossing gas on the fire. And there's, 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 I, I think there's not one women's group that will not make hay of that. Because to your point, Justin, they'll talk about the lack of female representation. 
um, they'll uh, they'll talk about you know the fact that you know it, it, this is just just one more log on the fire of showing that 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 we as men don't get it. And right. Yeah. It's it. Oh. I I don't think it's going to go well. I just don't. I think Ellen so, makes. I, I, sorry, I think Ken makes. Hold on, Sharmila first and Alan Moore. Sharmila, yeah. go yeah. ahead. Sure. Well, I, I think Ken makes a really good point because I think that, you know, other, apart from the tokenism issue, I think there's also a, a legitimate question of why do you need a woman to be questioning another woman about her accusation? Doesn't that su- sort of subliminally send a message that, you know, men are not capable or, you know, not able to empathize and talk in a nuanced and, you know, talking in a nuanced way about sexual assault, it, that seems also to be a, a bit of a, a ridiculous message for for the party to be sending and something that they certainly don't want to send. It shouldn't be the case that only a woman can talk to another woman and question another woman about her experience with sexual assault. That should not, that should also not be a, a message the yeah, party should absolutely. be wanting to send. Uh, Alan so, Moore. So I, I, I agree with both, both Ken and Sharmila here. It's not that I think they should find a woman. What I was saying is they are apparently considering that option. There aren't any very good options. It won't be Murkowski or Collins. I I did say that. There was some discussion that it might be Kelly Ayotte. But I agree with them that if you go that road, it raises these other questions. I think the committee is struggling and wrestling with this very question. Should we, do we need a woman? How does that look? Who would we get? How would that look? If, how do we manage our own selves? Let's say they decide, no, that it's not worth the risk. Who on the committee do we think would be the best questioners? What I do not expect is a free-for-all on the Republican side of asking questions of, uh, of this witness. I think they will probably defer to one, two, or three people to – do the questioning, and the others will say that all my questions have been asked. And that takes a kind of discipline that these guys don't normally have, but we have very high stakes in this case. Um, and nor do we know what the Democrats are going to do because they also don't want to overplay their hand here. Um, and so uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of strategizing and thinking that needs to go into this process over the next couple of days. I'm not predicting what they will do other than I predict that it won't be Murkowski or Collins, and, and I predict uh, that, that, that they won't have a free-for-all among the Republicans where 11 different people take turns um, asking questions right. and possibly going down uh, wrong directions. Those are my predictions. Right. Sharma, uh, let me ask this because I talked to some folks in the Senate that say that there's other concerns about Kavanaugh, uh, one being the Miranda emails, that there's some concern that, in fact, Judge Kavanaugh may have perjured himself or not have been as forthcoming during his testimony, during his hearing that is now coming to new light. Uh, Is that something that Judge Kavanaugh and the White House should be concerned about? Absolutely. At this point, especially considering the nature of Professor Ford's allegation, Judge Kavanaugh's credibility is paramount. And if there's other evidence that undermines his credibility, then that's absolutely something the White House is going to be concerned about because it makes him a far less 
a persuasive candidate and it makes him, you know, right now the the White House and the Republicans who are supporting him are really running a narrative of, you know, this is a great man. He's got, you know, he's got this incredible pedigree. He has, you know, 40 years of a pretty much spotless record. No, um, and, you know, he's suddenly being unfairly and partisanly targeted by this one woman with an ax to grind. I'm not saying that every Republican is saying that. I'm just saying that that's sort of the, the, the behind-the-scenes party line that's being advanced. And, you know, it's, even the president came out today and said, you know, he's a great man and it's so unfair. He's, he's, he doesn't deserve this type of treatment. And so for a piece, piece of evidence to come out that would sort of crack that facade and further cast doubt on his truthfulness, that's going to be, if that does become public, that's going to be incredibly harmful to his case. And I think that that's even going to turn a lot of public opinion against him. And Ken, I've had I've heard some, from some on the Hill that said, "Look, it did happen. You're a drunk 17 year old. You're technically a minor. Uh, it, it, would it have been better for Judge Kavanaugh, even if it didn't happen in the account that Professor Ford sets, for him to just say, "Look, I I don't have any recollection of this. I do not remember anything happening that way." Uh, if I made her feel uncomfortable, then then I apologize wholeheartedly. Would that have been a better response to this, or is the denial the way to go here? I, I you know what? Here's the deal. Um, uh, I I may be uh, cast as com- being completely naive, but I, I like being this way. Just tell the truth. If you honestly think that you believe that you're innocent, yeah, you know what? I, I didn't do this. And if and if you did it, uh, I've got a really good friend who runs a cigar shop in Dallas, Texas. He's from Jordan. And his favorite saying is, "It's not the deed, it's the lie." But, but Alan Moore, I mean Alan Moore, looking at it from that aspect, you know, there's been uh, there's been situations that I know people that have you know tried to be intimate with a girl nonviolently and they took it the wrong way. Uh, it's not condonable, but it's not exactly being played out as it is in the media today as a as a sexual assault. Uh, is 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 it better for Judge Kavanaugh to say, "Look, I just don't remember that happening that way"? It's too late, Justin. It's too late. Um, is it? That was a question. That was a question that was relevant uh, a few days ago. Um, when he, when, when these, uh, the accusation emerged and then the identity of the accuser came out, in that instant, he knew something. And he either went with his understanding and knowledge and memory, as Ken says, with, you know, if, if, if the truth for him is, hell no, it never happened, then that's really important to say. If there's any little piece of doubt in his mind, um, then he has to reflect on whether there is a way to say, oh, my God, there were a few occasions where I got drunk. I have no recollection of this. It horrifies me that I might have done this. And, oh, my God, but I don't remember that would be an that would be a potentially plausible answer that might or might not have saved him if if he goes down, but it's too late. He said it didn't happen. Not then, not ever, 
over and out. And that's his position. And as Susan Collins said, if it turns out that he was lying, then game over. So he's, you know, it, 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 it's an interesting question. It was an interesting question, and maybe it'll be something in the future people can say, geez, I wonder if, if, if it would have gone better if he had said this. You know, if this, this third person, we haven't talked about the third person, who was a, supposedly present, who I believe who busted has said, up the interaction. Well, who who right supposedly, and he said I he started out saying I have no recollection, then he said it didn't happen, and now apparently he's back to I have no recollection. What's that all about? Right now, as I understand it, he's not scheduled to testify. He needs to testify because <laughs> yeah. you know you rarely does a does a sexual assault situation, especially one thirty five years old, have a potential eyewitness? And so, if my God, if there's a potential eyewitness, talk about a potential corroboration. Um, uh, you want that witness. You can't ignore that witness. And so, I, I think that person needs to be heard from, whether through uh, right. testimony or or an affidavit. And yeah, uh, right. uh, and that could be really important here. Well, I, yeah, no, and I, 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 I just want to challenge. Charma, go ahead real quick, and then I'm going to close sure. out. Um, yeah, and I just want to challenge something Justin said um, recently, even though it's not purely political. But I think that there, we have to recall, again, that there's, there's a world of difference between, you know, making an unwanted, you know, sexual or romantic advance, trying to kiss someone when they're not interested, uh, versus what Judge Kavanaugh is accused of doing, which was a true sexual assault. This was holding someone down against their will, covering their mouth so they couldn't breathe or scream, and trying to rip their clothes off forcibly. That is very different than, you know, an unwanted advance to which someone reacts poorly to. And I think that, you know, I understand that sometimes in the headlines these things can get conflated, but I, I want us to, no, no, to no, be no, mindful no. about it's the Charmla. actual Thank accusation. You, yes. No, no, Charmla, wait a minute. Wait, hold on, hold on. I, 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 I want to just say something really quickly. Look, there is no rightful excuse for anything that even resembles sexual assault. Sexual assault is not only illegal, it's just wrong. We need to be clear about that. What I am saying here is that at a party when somebody is drunk, here's the problem I have. And, and, and by the way, I also want to tie in the fact that Democrats are about to run an almost $1 million ad campaign on TV, basically calling out the sexual assaults of President Trump and comparing Judge uh, Kavanaugh with sexual assaults, calling him a sexual predator almost. That is absolutely and categorically unfair and incorrect and wrong. And if the Democrats have any any stones about him, would call for that to be pulled. That's number one. Number two, if in fact it is proven that Judge Kavanaugh did in fact commit, whether he was drunk or not, 17 or not, a what could be and the evidence shows that he committed what could be considered a sexual assault he should withdraw however it should be said that this is an event that happened 35 almost 40 years ago 
I think that this has the potential of not only continuing to harm the you know the emotions and and, and the and the emotional hurtful past that this might come up in Dr. Ford's mind, but this is also tearing up an entire family and the people that I know that know Judge Kavanaugh, the interactions that I have had with Judge Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh is, by all accounts, a good man of the community, a good jurist, and a good family man, not condoning this event. But I think that both sides need to be very careful on how they vilify the other side, Republicans and Democrats, because this is a very dangerous slope and a very dangerous firearm we're playing with here. And a lot of people get hurt at the risk of political superiority. Admiral Ken, last word to you. Well, I think, I think the, 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 the comment that I would make is that uh, I, I've got a, a good number of friends and acquaintances that I've made over the last, you know, 50 years or so. And having once been a, um, a drunken uh, 17 and 18 year old, um, I, I know nothing like this occurred in my past. And I know that that's true of most, most people. And given that judge Kavanaugh uh, is, has become in his adult life, a pillar of society does not mean that at some point when he was a kid, he screwed up. I concur, and I agree with your comments, Justin, that um, anybody trying to make political hay out of this is doing the wrong thing, be they Democrat or Republican. It's just not right. This is a very, very sad situation for both people. Um, and and I, I, you know, all day long I've been listening to, to, to the news, news folks talk about the comparisons to this and Justice Clarence Thomas's um, um, confirmation process. I mean, it's 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 sad. And no, nobody came out of that with nobody came out of that situation, nor will anyone else come out of this situation without needing to go take a long hot shower. It's it's sad. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that comparison next week. Obviously, if the hearing does go uh, as it is being rumored, we're going to be obviously monitoring that next Monday, and we'll bring that up for next Tuesday's show. Um, that being said, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to – oh, and by the way, I do want to mention one thing before we close out this segment. The tweet put out by Donald Trump Jr. Just put him in a closet somewhere, please, really. That tweet was not only immature, it was politically insensitive. It was, emotion, it was emotionally immature. That I mean, Sharmila, back me up on that. Uh, I didn't actually see the tweet. What did it say? You're kidding. No. You didn't see the tweet where he put out regarding uh, Professor don't Ford? Shame, don't shame Sharmila. I'm not <laughs> yeah. shaming Sharmila. Don't pundit shame me. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what it's all about. It's pundit shaming time. You should be shame. Shame on... I'm going to protest your next Senate confirmation hearing. Anyway, that being the case, we're going to take a break. When we come back, and speaking of tweets, we're going to talk about hurricanes, the politics of Twitter in hurricanes, and what actually happened in Puerto Rico. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of, live from Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. (laughs) 
the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharm Lachari, Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine. Hey, we're going to talk a little bit about the week's events involving Hurricane Florence and the political ramifications of what happened in and around Hurricane Florence as it approached. Um, Last Tuesday, the Trump administration announced their plans to roll back federal rules on methane, greenhouse gases, uh, basically an anti-global warming intent push uh, to roll back the regulations that say there is global warming. Uh, This is a stance that the Trump administration has been pushing for a while. And then as Hurricane Florence, now, by the way, not to mention the fact that there were three, at one time, three major hurricanes in the Atlantic at one time as Hurricane Florence was approaching the Carolinas last week. Uh, As Hurricane Florence was approaching, it spun up the, it, it spun up a lot of media attention about how FEMA was going to react. It put a lot of attention on Brock Long, the administrator, and how his agency was going to react better or how they could react to Florence in response or in, in retrospect of how they responded to uh, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria last year. It then brought up the fact that uh, as this hurricane approached, President Trump tweeted, I think Puerto Rico was incredibly successful. Puerto Rico was actually our tough, our toughest one of all because it is an island. You can't truck things onto it. Everything is by boat. The job that FEMA and law enforcement and everybody did working along with the governor in Puerto Rico, I think was tremendous. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible unsung success, which drew out a lot of controversy from political opponents of the president, considering that the official death toll went from 64 to 
after it was all researched, said, and done, up to 2,975, which is just a few short of the number of folks that were killed in the attacks in 9-11. The, the tweet has now caused all kinds of consternation, all kinds of political headbutting. The bottom line here, though, is, is that Hurricane Florence has passed through. It is still wreaking havoc. Catastrophic floods are being looked at throughout the Carolinas. Uh, as of today, there were more than 14 people that have been confirmed killed as a result of Hurricane Florence. And those numbers may go up as the rivers continue to rise to ultimate cresting point, which some of the larger rivers may crest tonight in the early or early hours of tomorrow morning around 2 a.m., which will create a whole other stage of havoc in flood responses. Uh, as we speak, heavy water and, and high water rescues are in uh, high water rescues and, and swift water rescues are currently being uh, are being done as we speak down the Carolinas. Uh, let's look though at the politics of this. You know, it, it, it's funny to me, Sharmila, that there, you've got another natural disaster. It, it, you know, it's coming to your East Coast. You know, it's coming. And by the way, the states that you won. Why is it that foreign to this president to not tweet out something like, hey, we're going to take the lessons that we learned and we're going to make sure that we put on our game hats and we're ready to go. We've got your back, Carolina. Why is this foreign to this president? I mean, is it surprising to us at this point that given a choice between Donald Trump's ego and you know the health and safety of the American people, Donald Trump's ego is going to win? That seems like a no-brainer to me at this point. I think that, you know, as we've said on the show millions of times, the president is incapable of ignoring slights to his ego, to his accomplishments, to what he believes is the truth. And he's always going to lash out at that first before being able to focus on anything else. I just read a story saying that the president is privately lashing out at Ron DeSantis for uh, publicly objecting to the president's tweet about the death toll in Puerto Rico. Uh, no word about what vengeance he's planning on Rick Scott yet, but we've seen this with this president time and time again, and it's part of the reason that so many people, including you know myself, including Ken, including Alan and Dan, and all of us at various points, have reiterated the fact that he is temperamentally unfit for the position he holds. So... I am not at all surprised by his actions in focusing on, you know, Maria instead of Florence, and I don't expect him to change at any point in the future. I mean, Admiral Ken, when you talk about whether it was 64, whether it was 3,000, uh, and, and everybody I have talked to inside the emergency management community are saying, eh, that number, 2,900 number is getting real close. Whether it's 64 or 2,900, the fact still remains there were people that lost their lives during this tragic natural disaster. What does it take? I mean, does this take away from the federal government's capability to respond and, and, and have credibility in responding to a situation? I mean, that, to me, that sounds like it would put FEMA at a disadvantage. 
I, I, I think I'm not. I'm not sure what. I'm not sure what you're asking me there. Um, so uh, I'll respond by this. So I, I, I've been, I've been, I've, I've been playing very close attention to hurricanes since the earliest days as a naval officer. I did, I did three hurricane evacuations before I was a junior, a junior grade lieutenant, um, in, in the first three years of my navy service, um, and um, barely escaped Hugo when he came into Charleston. Um, it's, it's just so I have seen nothing but improvement in how FEMA reacts to these. Um, events over the course of time. Uh, I, I, I will even go so far as to say I think FEMA, uh, under the leadership that they had, did some of the best they could they could do under Katrina. Uh, I think President uh, Bush got kind of a, a you know stepped to a, stepped into a bad situation there, and, and uh, I leave it to the historians and other pundits to talk about whether he deserved the heat that he got. I don't think he did. Um, but I've seen nothing but it get better. Um, I think that the biggest issue with Katrina uh, wasn't FEMA's response. The biggest issue with FEMA was the president's commentary around FEMA's response. Are you are you talking about President Bush and Katrina? No, I'm talking about President Trump uh, and his response to the hur- to Hurricane Maria. So I'm saying I oh, think okay. that that's the, that's the biggest issue with Hurricane Maria. I apologize. Is that not 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 FEMA's response to Hurricane Maria, but President Trump's commentary around it? But Sharmila, when when you got a an already overtaxed agency like FEMA, I mean these people are still trying to catch their breath from last year's hurricane season with Maria Irma and uh, with Maria Irma and and uh, Marie, and uh, Harvey. Matthew. Oh, Harvey, and, well, right, and Matthew, and Matthew from two years ago. Let's not forget that we're still dealing with Matthew, and we're still dealing with stuff from Sandy from five years ago. This is a really strung out agency right now. Does this, does this type of politicalization of what's happening in Puerto Rico help? them or does that hurt their ability to i mean if it were me i would be like it it, it, it's hurtful i think that in the immediate i think that you know the majority of the workers at fema are professionals who understand that they need to shake this stuff off on a day-to-day basis in order to help people in need i think you know in the immediate response to hurricane florence I highly doubt any of those first responders and any of those FEMA workers were thinking about the president's tweets, right? They had much more Uh important things to do. So I think that obviously it always undermines the credibility of of a federal organization if the president of the United States is on record disputing facts that that agency has put out. Um, This is no different. So I think that, but I think that, you know, because of the nature of FEMA's work, I don't think that their mission will be compromised too much. And I think if anything, this almost, in a, in a paradoxical way, the fact that FEMA commissioned this independent study and the president is disputing it almost gives the study more credibility. Because you know Donald Trump is a pathological liar and someone who can't stand the idea of his version of the truth not being the truth. And so I think that 
in a weird way if what FEMA says and what the president says are different. I think that to a lot of people that will give the FEMA account more truthfulness and more credibility. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah. So, so this episode is not a problem for FEMA. In fact, he's giving them more credit in terms of death toll than the facts uh, support. What it reflects though is how this man's brain works and that is frightening because somewhere early on he's down in Puerto Rico, bless his heart for going. um, And he gets a report that there's somewhere between it was like eight and 18, six and 18 people who had died. As of that point, he locks that fact into his brain and rides that fact into the future, dredges it up at a, at a totally inappropriate time, at a time when the death toll for Maria was not relevant in talking about, uh, about Florence, had no bearing, totally re- unrelevant. He could simply, all he had to say was, we have great confidence in the FEMA people that they, 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 respond to tragedy better than they ever have. End of story. But no, he dredges up a fact that somehow his brain is incapable of adjusting in the face of new information. He goes back to the first fact, and I don't know if the right number is 2,900, 4,500, 2,000. It's a whole hell of a lot bigger than 18 or 60. Um, But he can't process that. That, my friends, I mean, we can, he lies, no question. I don't think he knew this was a lie. It was so stupid, so incredibly, demonstrably stupid and wrong that even he, I don't think, would do it intentionally. But once he does it, then he tries to, he refuses to back down. He said, you know, I misspoke. And by bringing up Maria, not only does he look stupid again and maybe look like a liar again, but we also have to see the visuals of his visit to Puerto Rico where he's lobbing rolls of paper towels that- as if he's shooting baskets. It, it, it's one of the more embarrassing visuals. That visual had no business being part of a of the Hurricane Florence story, but it became regular fodder because of the idiotic statement that he made reflecting his inability to incorporate new facts once he's made up his mind about something. And, oh, my God, is that ever a horrifying reminder of how his brain works. I think Alan is absolutely right. And actually, Bob Woodward talks about that a bit in his book and talks about how the president, you know, once he's decided on something or once he thinks he, you know, quote unquote, knows something, he will override all of his advisors who tell him opposite facts. I think there was a story about um, maybe talking about talking to his generals about the war in Afghanistan and how he had just convinced himself of a particular fact or a, a particular set of events. And his generals kept trying to tell him that's not true. That is not true at all. You know, the, the facts are the opposite, and he wouldn't budge. He just said, no, I know this is true. The, the other issue facing this response and facing uh, 
the FEMA leadership is now apparently the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security is in fact looking at the misuse of vehicles by FEMA Administrator Brock Long. Uh, Admiral Ken, uh, Administrator Long, who for all intents and purposes is a Boy Scout from uh, those who know him, uh, apparently or allegedly took a FEMA vehicle uh, and brought it down to North Carolina, uh, possibly with an aide or two, down to his family home in North Carolina, put these aides up in uh, in, in uh, a motel. But the accusations coming around that it was a misuse of funds, his argument is that he needed it for secure comms and in case he had to divert for a hurricane. Does Brock Long's argument hold water? Yeah, I think it does. Um, uh, I think it does. Uh, you know, if 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 they weren't using the vehicle once they were uh, in the Carolinas to run out and grab pizza or go shopping and that kind of thing, and he legitimately wanted to stay in touch with what was going on, I you know, having been in the, in, a, in an IG role before, I, I personally wouldn't have a problem with that. And it smells like somebody's uh, using the uh, the tweezers to uh, you know to pick uh, to pick out um, seeds out of the uh, out of the oatmeal. This is just, that's just crazy. Sharmila, do you agree? Um, the details I read about it were slightly different, and it was, it, to me, the report I read seemed that it was a repeated um, misuse of cars or potential misuse of cars. So it wasn't just a one-time incident that he used the car once. It was that he was repeatedly using the cars to travel between D.C. and his family home in North Carolina. So I think that, you know, I don't know enough about the facts to to determine it one way or the other. I think that I think it seems to me unlikely that the IG would open a report for an isolated incident. Um, but if and if that is if that is true, then I would agree with, with Ken that this is, you know, seemingly an overreach for, for not a particularly good reason. But I think that if it's a pattern of questionable behavior, then there's a lot more substance to a potential investigation. Uh Alan Moore is, is to me, it sounds like a fair reason to have a vehicle and the secure comms, but uh, those who don't necessarily see eye-to-eye with the administration, critics have said that it's a matter of having a secure cell phone, and if he needs a Suburban and two aides to carry a cell phone around, he's got bigger issues. Is that argument fair? So here's my take, and it's closer to Sharmila's, I must say. Um, uh, I think there's been a pattern, and it's not like he and two aides. He's got a driver. He's got a chauffeur-driven, big-ass uh, vehicle that he's a used suburban, apparently. A suburban, clear. Fair enough, big suburban, used quite a bit to go back and forth from D.C. to North Carolina. Um it, it's if he's halfway there and he gets called to go somewhere, um, it's not like he's right by an airport. Members of the cabinet um, and senior members of the administration in different jobs travel all the time. They usually fly if there's air service. And for whatever reason, he decided that he'd rather ride and take some staff uh, and do some work in the car and 
to say that he needs secure communication the entire time, even though if he goes to Denver, he ain't driving. Um, and, and if he's going to Puerto Rico, he's not driving. I mean, he's, he's a guy who has to travel in normal commercial transportation on a very regular basis. And in a true emergency, probably might even be able to, to requisition a government plane to get someplace. So it, it, it's, it, that, but that's why you have inspectors general. And maybe it was a malicious request because maybe this happened two or three times and not 20 or 30 times. I don't know. I'm going to reserve judgment, but I'm not going to get upset that there's an IG investigation because it sounds a little bit of a stretch to say, hey, can't leave my secure communications um, on my weekend trips home or my trips home every other weekend. I just don't know. I don't know enough. So let's see what the IG says and let's see what he says about it. But, you know, it's got the potential to be fairly embarrassing because it's expensive (laughs) to take staff people for lengthy trips, put them up, feed them, um, and and bring them home. It's a lot of dough. It's some of what got got, uh, EPA uh, uh, Commissioner Pruitt in so much trouble. Um, So we'll see. Well, see, Sherman, it saddens me. I mean, yeah. I, I hate these, these sideshows, especially in the middle of a, of a FEMA emergency. Um, but, uh, you know, things happen when they happen. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think that the person who – or the, the, the establishment that's more damaged in, in all this is the Trump administration, right? Because this right. is another sort of mark against his sort of – his message that he was going to drain the swamp. Instead, it seems like it is a font of nonstop corruption between Tom Price and Scott Pruitt and now this and, you know, all the other stories of misuse of government resources uh, or abuses uh, or petty abuses of power. I think that, you know, to a lot of voters, there's a distinct pattern emerging and that does not look well. That's not a good look for the Trump administration, regardless Uh, of whether or not. We've got to, Oh, we've got a caller on. It's cleared of any wrongdoing. Yeah, we've got a caller on hold. Caller, you're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Caller? Yes. Yes, thank you very much for taking my call. This is Mike. I would like to ask any of you, please, can you tell me what FEMA has done so far? It it has passed almost uh, 72 hours or 80 hours uh, from the time that uh, this hurricane hit North Carolina, South Carolina. I mean, I, I have not seen anything that FEMA has done yet for the people. I mean, price gouging is still exists. I mean, the, I mean, I don't understand. Uh, they so, should drop the food, they down or or bring it down to them. They pick up the food and that's it. I mean, they are not doing anything. It's a second Katrina and shame on the Trump. Go ahead. Please. Well, I, I can tell, I can tell you, I can tell you from personal experience as somebody who has worked with FEMA, who is somebody who has worked closely. In emergency management, I can tell you exactly what they're doing. Uh, FEMA is doing exactly what they're supposed to do. FEMA is supporting the emergency management agencies of the states of South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, even uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, Virginia are also involved. I know that, uh, that FEMA is, in fact, putting down 
millions and millions of dollars worth of resources and gearing up to enter the area to start processing for disaster relief, starting to get money and support functions in there. FEMA's job is not an emergency response agency. Let me be clear about this. And this is a fallacy that a lot of Americans have. FEMA supports the state governments in their response to catastrophic events. They are a a federal government support agency. They continue to monitor. They continue to have the resources. They have the resources that have been requested by the governors in each state and by the county administrations, county leaderships, and municipal leaders in those states. Uh, Make no mistake about it is FEMA is working their rear end off and has been doing so since they put up hurricane watches along the East Coast. Uh, caller, thanks a lot for your thanks a lot for your call. Additionally, yes. can I have one question too? Yeah, go ahead, Admiral Ken. Uh, additionally, FEMA um, is serves as a coordination uh, point for a lot of the federal agencies that normally. Uh, don't get involved with emergencies. For instance, uh, DOD. Uh, FEMA works to uh, bring in um, people from the armed forces with uh, assets like helicopters and, and ships and boats to, to come in and provide support as well. So FEMA, uh, in addition to all those things and a bunch that we didn't, uh, a bunch of things we didn't list, they're there. They're active and they're doing. A, they're doing. They're doing oh, what yeah. they always do. Yeah, there, there's no question about that. Uh, but anyway, that being said, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the increasing trade war that's happening between us and China. Uh, apparently, it's not going away, contrary to what a lot of supporters of the administration have said. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back for the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live from Washington, D.C., on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday for this hour, Admiral Ken Carradine, the Honorable Alan Moore. Uh, joining us from an undisclosed location in upstate New York is our producer, Audrey Howerton. Hey, in case you haven't noticed, we're kind of in a trade war with China. I know the administration would tell you it, we're not in a trade war. I know a lot of the supporters of Trump would tell you that we're not in a trade war. Guess what? We're in a trade war. The uh, President Donald Trump is going to impose 10% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports. And oh, by the way, that will rise to 25% at the end of the year. This action announced by the administration on Monday has escalated this conflict between the two largest economies on the planet. China's already threatened to retaliate with new duties and tariffs on American imported goods, including an additional tariff on agricultural products. Uh, This is going to ratchet up tensions between Washington and Beijing. And as of yesterday, China has said, you know what, we don't need to talk like this. We can bail out of this any day. There is definitely tension here. This has gotten the attention of a lot of people that would be Trump supporters, particularly in the manufacturing and in the agricultural community. This is, without a doubt, probably the biggest game of economic chicken this country's seen in the better part of decades. Let's go to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, as former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, you are definitely familiar with this aspect of the economy this, by the way, is on top of already imposed tariffs on Chinese imported goods, which were counteracted by their version of implemented tariffs on American goods, including agricultural products such as soy, wheat, corn. Uh, everybody had hoped that this would put pressure on Beijing Beijing doesn't seem to be flinching here, Alan. What's up with that? Well, (laughs) big picture what's going on here is that the president, true to his word, believes that trade deals are easy, that, that we've been getting screwed for years in every deal you can imagine from NAFTA to European trade agreements to the World Trade Organization and in our relationships with China and others. He thinks it's easy. It's not easy. There's no free lunch. There are unintended consequences. Trade arrangements that have evolved over decades don't get unraveled in a moment. The president to this day has shown no standing of how trade agreements work, of how uh, complicated they are, of how many different pieces you have to put together. Uh, I've said in the past, I think that there are legitimate, important trade uh, issues with most particularly the Chinese. I think we have, we've, we, we, we allowed ourselves to agree to some things and let happen some things that, that are problematic uh, and potentially damaging short and long-term for the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, the president didn't start 
with those issues. I was a fan of NAFTA. I had no problem with our basic trade arrangements with uh, with Europe. I was a fan of the trade, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, uh, which Trump uh, uh, stopped discussing. But that was, remember, only after Hillary Clinton said, yeah, this is not a good deal. I wouldn't sign it. So it's, it, the, the, the problem now with China is when that should have been our exclusive focus from the beginning and not with a meat cleaver like the president uses, but with uh, some delicate back and forth conversations. Um, uh, it's mucked up with the, the, the damaged relationships we have with Mexico, with Canada and with Europe. With regard to China, they're they're on the verge of being the largest economy in the world. They're not the richest on a per capita basis by any stretch, but the largest, the biggest. We've, uh, we've been a big market for them. They've helped us. Uh, buying products from China has allowed American uh, consumers get a lot of stuff they want at a lot lower price than they other would have had to pay. If you go to Walmart, most of what you buy will be coming from China. And uh, so – uh, if you think about that fact um, and think about the fact that, that there's going to be a 10% tariff on some $200 billion worth of, uh, of, of imports, that's $20 billion of revenue that's going to come from something. And I can yeah, tell Alan, you where it's going to come from. It's going to come from consumers, and, uh, and it will go to 25% at the end of the year if the Chinese retaliate, which they say they're going to do and they've described what what they're going to do on 60 billion dollars of of u.s exports into china admiral ken the president today as late as this afternoon was in a a presser with the president of poland who was here for an official state visit uh, and during that, they, they asked about the China tariffs, and he pretty much came back and said, hey, we are, in fact, putting billions of dollars back in the pockets of Americans. It, it really strikes me as, as, as smart economic advisors surround him. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Larry Kudlow and other economic advisors in the White House. This president still does not understand what a tariff is, and it's not putting money back in. In fact, if you listen to the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, Jay Timmons, their president said that tariffs are risking undoing the entire results the manufacturers have achieved because of his tax cuts. Is, is this falling on deaf ears in the Oval Office, Admiral Ken. So, so my, 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 the next comments that I make are to the few Trump supporters that are listening to our show, and I hope you guys will tell your <laughs> friends. Okay? Number one, President Trump got rid of TPP because it had Barack Obama's name attached to it. That is the only reason. The, no, one, no one disputes the fact the Chinese were engaging in bad trade practices, and TPP was designed to help the allies get together to push back on them together rather than the U.S. doing it alone and in the process torquing off our allies. That's item number one. Item number two, what is a tariff? That means that we're going to charge higher prices for imported goods coming into the country. There's only two places where that, where that increased cost is going to be uh, dealt with, either 
either the manufacturers are going to bite are going to bite the bullet, or they're going to pass on that that uh, that cost to us, the American um, uh, consumers. Guess what? The manufacturers never never suck it up; they pass it on to us. So your boy, right now, your president is basically taking the money that that he put into your pocket through that tax cut last year, and he's taking it away. That's it. Okay, uh, Alan Moore. Regarding uh, the National Association of Manufacturers, is is Trump just not hearing the advice of those who were the biggest supporters of his tax cut uh, and his economic advisors saying, look, if this does take away the benefits and all the results that have happened as a result of his tax cuts in one year – Going into midterms and going into 2019 does not help his cause for keeping Republicans in power. So let's remember what he's trying to do. Let's remind ourselves how narrow-minded he is to his detriment and to the U.S. economy's detriment. But, but he sees things as transactional, and he – he thinks about stuff as a real estate deal where there's a, a winner and a loser, or maybe a deal to make uh, Trump vodka or Trump ties. Um, and, and, and what he does is he takes that notion of applying pressure, relieving pressure and as a, and applies it to the entire trade relationship of one of our largest trading partners to $200 billion worth of stuff. And that stuff is everything from, from t-shirts at Walmart to Apple phones and, and all sorts of high tech uh, electronics. And you cannot uh, cram uh, thousands of products into one simple notion. Remember his response when he was applying a special tariff on steel and aluminum into Europe and Harley-Davidson already struggling with demographic change and and overproduction capacity here in America basically said, this pushes us over the edge. We're going to have to ramp up our production capacity in Europe. Um, they're making a rational decision based on what they know about their market, what costs are, and so on. And, and the president turned on Harley. It's like, how dare you? But remember what he said. He said, you just need a little patience. So in the Trump view, the Trump world, you apply some pressure and let it sting for a while, and then the other side will, uh, will collapse and, and, and give you what you want. And then you can go back to where you started. Well, interesting idea. It doesn't work that way when you're talking about thousands of products. You might be able to squeeze a manufacturer here or there. It just doesn't work writ large. The president still doesn't understand that. So companies are going to be like like Harley Davidson. Yeah, but Alan, doesn't that ignorance put into jeopardy just the world market, but all puts into jeopardy sort of newfound economic gains that we've seen in the 18 months he's been president. 
Well, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just completely stupid and unnecessarily risky. There are going to be unintended consequences. There are going to be unknown winners and losers. There are going to be Harley Davidson type companies that feel like they're all American companies who simply say, we don't know what's going to happen six months from now. We can't assume that the Chinese are going to uh, cave to this pressure. We have to we have to deal with the world as we know it. We're going to. We're going to look elsewhere for uh, uh, for the inputs for U.S. products or for the products we put on our shelves. Um, you can't just turn on a dime. It's not a negotiation that is that's limited to selling a single condo or a single building or some vodka or some ties. It's uh, an entire trade relationship with all of these complexities. And so we don't know what will happen. I mean, it's the kind of thing where the, 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 the Chinese are going to respond. It's going to hit things like soybeans particularly hard because Chinese consumers and importers of soybeans have to make a decision. Are, are these tariffs going to go away that the Chinese government's now imposed? I don't know. Let's talk to Brazil about buying more soybeans from Brazil. And so suddenly the the um, American uh, heartland producers of soybeans say, holy crap, we, we had a well-established, solid relationship here, and now it's put at risk. Mr. President, what the hell are you doing to us? We don't know. You know, the president can – he moves – in a moment, on a whim, but these poor companies have to make decisions months out, years out. If you're going to move your production facility uh, capacity from uh, from the upper Midwest to Europe to make Harley Davidsons, you, those, those are uh, hundred million dollar plus decisions that you make over a, over a period of of years. But you you don't have the luxury of just saying, "Fine, we'll lose millions and millions and millions of dollars." in the hope that this is going to uh, get fixed and go away with this president. There's no reason to feel confident about his understanding of that, his flexibility, his sensitivity to that. He just gets mad when companies act in their own interest and don't, and don't line up with his naive and mostly ignorant view of how most of the economy works. And, and Admiral even Ken, worse than that. Oh, joining us now is Dan Lipner. Wow. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks for checking in. <laughs> so everything that Alan said is absolutely correct, but even the great negotiator should know something for the arms length negotiation he likes having, or supposedly likes having, and he deems himself to be an expert in. The strength of the negotiator you're in the room with. So President Trump dealing with poll numbers and people screaming, and by the way, living in an actual democracy, whereas in China, though there are sort of elections, uh, the president of China is in a different bargaining position than President Trump. How arguably, so? The, arguably, the Chinese can easily wait out the Trump administration, whether or not it's another two years for another six years. At some point, they know this is going to end. Yep. And the injuries that are going to be caused domestically in the United States 
are going to cause screaming, and that screaming will be heard at the ballot box. Not that there isn't complaining and screaming in China, but the direct consequences aren't as easily read in the results of how the government functions. Alan, would you agree with Dan's assessment that the Chinese can wait out a, a game? They can play a waiting game better yeah, they, than they, the Americans can? Absolutely, 100%. They have a lot more capacity to uh, to to wait because their government has its own uh, hand uh, full of money um, that it's earned in the U.S. and elsewhere. That it can great difficulty. Alan Moore, you can't cook and talk at the same time. We lost you. <laughs> I can't. There we go. No, we lost you again, Alan Moore. What's that? I've, I have not moved. I have sitting and not doing anything. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, not not only not only not only can the Chinese um, um, do do the waiting game uh, on this particular subject. They've got a history and a culture of, of looking at the long view. I mean, one of the biggest yeah. complaints that that their that their military officers um, like to cite about Americans is that we have this in, this this idea of, of, a, of a of a of immediacy. We we expect things to happen right now versus right now for them. You know that's unusual. They you know they're looking at ten, fifteen, twenty years down the road. If you look at how they've done their economy, how they've done the military with the inclusion of building out their first aircraft carrier almost fifty years after we did our first one, you know it, it's they they're used to waiting. They're used to waiting, and I think that's the biggest thing. And, and uh, Dam is absolutely right. Um, the 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 thing that they haven't figured out, that Trump hasn't figured out, that he is not going up against you know some of these 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 bozos that he worked with when he was building out or trying to build out his casinos it's a whole different ball game and he's the guy that's a rookie here not these guys right and and it, alan moore we're was, used to yeah what i was trying to uh, let me just finish because what, what I, I totally agree with 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 ken that it's in their culture but the other thing that they have now is an enormous amount of wealth and a lot of ability to take that wealth and let's say you've got a company or two or five or twenty who, who are suddenly in, in, in significant trouble, um, they can help those companies. They have <laughs> the ability in their governmental system to say, how much do you need? Here's $5 million. Here's $10 million. Here's $25 million. In America, when, when we realized that there were going to be some, some significant pressure on U.S. agriculture, particularly soybeans, there was a big effort to say, Gee, is there some money somewhere? Can we help out our farmers a little bit here but, and a little bit there? Okay, but Alan, um, we don't, Alan, have, here's, here's we where don't have the flexibility or deep pockets to do those things that the Chinese do. All right, but Alan, and, here's where I get and, confused. Hold on, hold on, hold on. This is where I get confused, everybody, and and I'll I'll leave this open to whoever wants to answer. Every time I hear that the Chinese can wait it out, the Chinese uh, have this long game plan, and we're the ones that are are really on the clock. I look back and I see the U.S. bailout of ZTE. So where's the conflict here? What am I missing? Look, for us to do a bailout, as we did much, you know, the big bailout was 2008 and 9. Um, no, no, but I'm talking about a Chinese of- company, Alan. I mean, ZTE, the Chinese electronics manufacturer which arguably imports a lot of electronics 
to the American market, whose biggest reseller in the country right now is, as we stated before, Walmart. How is it that this electronics manufacturer goes under without some sort of relief from the U.S. government on past fines and tariff payments? No, no, no. So, so this is this that particular. I thought you said GTE. So, so the no. GTE situation was tailor made for the president, and the fact that it ran directly into conflict with. <laughs> Everything else he was trying to do with the Chinese, big picture, beat the hell out of them, small picture, make a side deal with the, Ch- with the Chinese premier and say, oh, ZTE, you want to keep them alive? Let me talk to my guys about but, the but sanctions see, that had been imposed. But, but, that, that, no, just let me finish. That, that, that the U.S. government had imposed sanctions on ZTE that was going to potentially affect their survival the president, the, the, the Chinese leader made a special appeal to our president saying, can you do something for these guys that's important to me, it's important to the workers there, and the president just sees it as a transaction. He doesn't see it as a template. He doesn't see it as a problem. He doesn't see it as an inexis- inex- inconsistent example of everything else he's trying to achieve. It's just like an unrelated thing. Oh, yeah, we can do that. But it didn't take any money out it out of out of uh, he, the president didn't have to go get money. He had some executive authority where he could order that up, and it was I, I thought it was a bad move. Set a bad example. It said to the Chinese and others, you know, if you talk to him personally, you can work a deal here or there. But the big picture is is what we're caring about right now. Ten percent tariff on two hundred billion dollars worth of goods. It could go to twenty five percent depending upon how the Chinese respond. It's big stuff, highly disruptive to lots and lots of U.S. companies, their employees, and their communities. So it, the, the president's ability to do what the Chinese can do is, is way limited. He doesn't have a big, fat chunk of dough that he can get. The U.S. government could bail, could, you know, could, could reach in, change the law, Find, you know, find money, create money, as we did um, with TARP and the other actions taken in 2008-9. But, well, you know, you need an emergency to, to get, if you to believe get the, the, Bob to Woodward get book, the Congress to respond. If you believe the Bob Woodward book, apparently Trump just has to go next door and ask Secretary Mnuchin to print up more money. We got this. Uh, Dan Lipner, here's what Alan was saying. And then the fact that we can see China play a long game, this is a risky political play for the president, considering that his numbers as of real clear politics are hovering around somewhere between 38 and 40 percent. That gives him base plus one, base plus zero as far as going into midterms. That's not powerful numbers for a White House that really wants to tout its economic prowess. Well, I think that 38% is way high compared to other poll numbers that are also out there. He's, from what I've seen, I think it's more likely he's floating in the low 30s. Um, and that said, the speculation is going to be moot soon enough. The November elections are going to show exactly uh, whether or not there is any air underneath his wings, or if he's just fitting everyone 
for concrete boots for what's coming down because the president is not in places where he needs to be in places where he is popular. There ain't, there ain't many people. I mean, the fact that Ted Cruz is, is fighting a real race in Texas does not bode well for the Republican party. And I know Alan will be sad to see Ted Cruz go. I mean, I know he's got a particular fondness there, but, I mean, if, if if that's if that's the turf we're fighting on, this is not good news. You, you know, Admiral Ken, this leads into you know just straight up political ideology, ideologies. This is a president that is touting the success of his administration and the strongest economy we've ever seen. However, if you're a true Republican and you're looking at the deficit numbers that came out this week, you got to be kidding me. This, I mean, these numbers are, uh, how do you put it, just shocking. You're talking about, uh, you're, you're talking about just the growth of deficit spending at a rate that we haven't seen in the better part of 15 years. And, Does and this, this vote well this for the, the president? This, and this is the gift of Trumpism. So, you know, the Republican Party, you know, until 18, 24 months ago was the party of small government reducing the deficit, um, uh, you know, uh, smart wait, spending. Wait, I, I, so at least that was at least that was that was the uh, <laughs> at least that was the, the, the message. Most of us that were true believers thought we were we were we were doing. And now, you know, this is what's going to this 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 is ultimately, I think. What's going to be the turning point? I, I think the you know with the the anniversary of the um, uh, the financial crisis of 2008, um, uh, I think one of the comments that I that I heard was you know will it, will this happen again? Well, sure. Um, will it be worse? Uh, I think if we stay on the path that we're on now, yeah, it will because we had we had money to bail people out last time. Um, I don't know that if 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 this occurs in the next 18 to 24 months, whether we're going to have not only the smarts uh, to, 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 to dig ourselves out of the hole. We know that, that, that there's such a rift between Republicans and Democrats um, uh, in Congress that the ability for those, those two parties to come together and, and come up with some sort of a, a legislative uh, solution, I think are, the chances of that are slim and none. And then we've got someone who just does not understand the fact that the American uh, economy, the economy of the world, does not look like uh, a, a building real estate uh, real estate purchase. We're, we're it's not a good situation. You know, I got Dan Lipner. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you up as our Democrat here because I look at these numbers that are coming out. We're talking about outlay government outlays grew eight percent. Uh, net interest on public debt jumped 25%. Uh, outlays for Social Security grew 5%. Outlays for Medicare benefits rose 7%. Uh, Agricultural Department made downward adjustments from the year ago, August. Uh, boosted government finance, I mean, receipts fell by 3%. To me, it sounds like increased government spending. This sounds like we got a Democrat in the White House. Okay, first and foremost, that rhetoric tired <laughs> has to go away. We, we do. Anyone, he always was a Democrat can, until 18 Can anyone ago. else on this show name the only president in the last 
30 years preside over a budget surplus. We're giving a balanced budget. Oh, Dan, I don't want to go into this. Come on, I was just playing. Come no, on. No, no, but, no, but that, that matters because the, the popular rhetoric is not is not supported by any evidence. Bill Clinton's the only president in the last 30 years to have a government surplus, period. Yay, and Bill Clinton. Yay, Bill Clinton. That he inherited from the Reagan-Bush administration. Make your point, Dan. Make your point, he brother. He didn't inherit it. it they, they, were running, they were running deficits. Now, you can I argue, not... as Alan has argued with me, that it was the Republican Congress that helped do this. And that right. is a debate that is worth having. However, right, we'll, we'll there's have no debate. evidence we'll have that, that Republicans debate. in the White House and Republicans running Congress create that balance the budget. The only difference is whether or not somebody's willing to tax for the money they spend or whether or not somebody's going to lay down the government credit card for the money they spend. There is no evidence that Republicans actually balance the budget. But 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 my point is, Dan, is that, you know, for somebody who is running and garnering a true base of ultra conservatives, he's running his government like a like like an ATM with endless cash in it, and that's not the case. Is is this sustainable, or is eventually the conservatives going to look at the real numbers and go, whoa, whoa, whoa? Okay, you gotta. I mean, that's also the, the other, that's also the other problem. You've missed you've misidentified the the Trump base. It's not conservative. It's some coalition of marginal religious. Social conservatives, and even then, it's a pretty narrow swath. There is the 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 people who are disturbed by the Browning of America. They're part of that swath, and then there's just the outright cultists that that believe Trump whatever he he does. That's the coalition. To call them to call the Trump coalition conservatives is an offense to actual conservatives who include economic conservatives. There's a reason the Koch brothers have left that camp. And on that, Dan and I are completely in agreement. <laughs> I'm, the, but, I'm there too. <laughs> okay, well, everybody's in agreement then. But Admiral Ken, how does the true Republican Party fix this, or can they? Um, I think they can. Uh, I think it would call for something that we have not seen very much of lately. I would even go so far as to see any of lately, and that's some profiles and courage in, in basically stepping up on the part of of, of, uh, of people who used to call themselves uh, conservatives uh, as well as Republicans when they were elected prior to Trump coming into office. Uh, it requires them to step up and start behaving that way again. And when the president starts making policies or uh, making comments that are antithetical to what um, uh, Republicans in the in the uh, the light of people like uh, Ronald Reagan uh, believe, is to is to stop and do something. I think the other thing that if if they don't correct it, um, they may find themselves getting voted out of office, uh, and someone will correct it for them. Uh, the other comment that I have to the Trump supporters that are listening today, don't worry about that blue wave thing. That's just fake news. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Stay home. Uh, Nothing to worry about. Stay right at home. No need to go out and vote. Nothing to see here. Everybody go back to your houses. Uh, Alan, Alan Moore. Let me, yeah. 
Well, let, let me just add a word about uh, uh, how this comes about, uh, this concern about these deficits. Right now, <laughs> it's painless. Right now, the U.S. Uh, economy, for all of its imbalances and its uh, refusal to pay for the services uh, it, it insists on giving out, um, uh, is able to do so with relative impunity for one single solitary reason, and that is we are still the safest uh, economic harbor in the world. So people with excess money, like the Chinese um, uh, and, and others, uh, when it comes to deciding what to do with their spare cash uh, to keep it safe, to keep inflation from destroying it, Put it into U.S. government bonds. We are still the safe harbor, um, and it's not because we're so great. It's just that we're better than just about everybody else. Oh yeah, but as long as China, when that changes, when yeah, but as long as China changes. keeps buying up our bonds and keeps holding our debt. That's my point. Right, but, but was I not clear? Is, if the they're, president they're turns buying off the it because press, those dollars for, become less valuable. It's right not now, we're. Right, we're still hold on, hold on. Alan, finish your thought and then Dan. market economy. So we're still the safest market economy. But the 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 greater the debt that we uh, accumulate, and the longer our refusal to bring back closer to balance what we uh, tax and what we spend, the greater the risk over time we will squeeze out our ability to borrow, our borrowing costs will go up, inflation will rise, and we run significant risk, significant risk of, of, uh, of, of, a, of a, a major recession, at which point the emergency will be at hand. And the, the sad thing about all of this is most of this stuff is pretty predictable. We can't predict the timing exactly. We know where the money's going to in 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 long term we've got 10,000 seniors retiring every day and they start drawing on social security they start drawing on on medicare and they stop producing additions to uh to the economy um you can do that for a while but our whole country is changing the the, the economy is changing we know what's happening with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We refuse to do anything about it because the politics is too challenging. And we have a president who during the campaign said, Social Security and Medicare, I'm not touching it. He took them but, off the table and simply said, yep, but we're going to balance that budget. And now we have in a very, very strong economy, a deficit approaching, truly annual deficit approaching a trillion dollars. But, but here's the thing is, and, and here's the other problem that we've got right now that nobody's talking about. And Dan Lipner, I don't think anybody realizes that we've run out of money in 13 days. And we've heard nothing that gives us the indication that we're not heading for a government shutdown at the end of the month. Uh, are we in fact looking down the barrel of another government shutdown, and God knows that doesn't do the Republicans any favors, as we've proven in the past. Well, I believe this president has has 
could have threatened that if he doesn't get more money for his wall, he's going to shut that, the government down anyway. Um, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and if he wants to be really crazy uh, and n- not to put anything past him, traditionally when there are government shutdowns, they still make sure that things like Social Security checks and Medicare are still doing what they need to do. But there's nothing that says this president couldn't hold everything up and say the government is doing nothing until I get what I want, that he'll stand there as until the entire world stands still. Uh, we'll see. Um, it's plenty to be worried about, and especially this president who feels like change, changing the topic uh, anytime he's in trouble, and he's got a lot of things in trouble, so... He just might do it. It's not. It, there's there's no if ands or buts about it. It's kind of scary. Uh, Admiral Ken, how do we? You know, when we look at the president's comments talking about the government shutdown possibility, the president said on Friday, "quote There are a lot of politicians that I like and respect and are with me all the way that would rather not do it because they have races. They have races." They're doing well. They're up. The way they look at it might be good, might be bad. Does that give you a warm and fuzzy if you're running in a tight race, like let's say in a House or a district or or in a House district or a Senate race that could be like marginally close? Does that give you any help? The fact that you might be going into a midterm with a government shutdown hanging over your head? No, it, it doesn't. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, I tried, you know, I try to, you know, I guess, create some level of empathy for some of these Republicans that are running for uh, reelection. But it's really difficult for me to do so these days, especially with those uh, who who just for whatever reason, uh, lack a spine, pick another reason that, that refuse to basically step up and call the president out when he's doing something outright wrong. Um the, the thing, though, that I that I find interesting is, is one, you know, government shutdowns have, have not gone well for the Republican Party uh, at, at, at any time uh, that they've occurred, and near as I can tell, in the last in the last ten years, they, they, it's just not something that we can put on our list of things that we should be proud of. Um, two, um, a good number of the folks that are running for office right now are are basically trying to do it without any kind of assistance from the president. I mean, uh, even DeSantis down here in Florida, you know, is is trying to figure out how to walk that fine line. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the Puerto Rico comments, you know, earlier in the show. Try to walk that fine line of saying, "Yeah, I'm with the president," but at the same time, he realizes that 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 that, that nationally, uh, the the president's not uh, not. Uh, not a not a big uh, boat drawer like like he was uh, eighteen twenty four months ago. So uh, you know I think the other thing too I would add is that you know all of these guys that that were defending the president and the fact that we like his unpredictability we we think that's a great thing. Well, welcome to the other side of the sword, fellas, because now now you don't know what's going to happen prior to the midterms and that unpredictability uh, may be something that's going to bite you. Alan Moore, do you foresee us getting into a government shutdown? Is the government going to shut down end of the month? Nope. Dan Lipner? Maybe. It depends how crazy the president is feeling that morning. <laughs> let, let, me add, let me add something to why, to why I say no. 
I pay okay. close attention to what the what the leadership says, and when Mitch McConnell and 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 Paul Ryan say we don't expect one, we're doing everything we can to avoid one, we don't see one. That's not what they say. They say there will not be one, and that tells me that they have received assurances from the president. I understand assurances from this president are, are uh, you know, need to be but again, uh, looked at but with again, some this- with some due diligence, but. But that but, that uh, when they when they say that, I think they have powerful assurances that 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 have convinced them, and that's why I say no. But Alan Moore, again, this is a president that told Fox News last Thursday, "quote If it was up to me, I'd shut down the government over border security," and that gives us a warm well, and fuzzy. Yeah, but no, but he says if it were up to me, and he realizes that he's made some promises him, he's that he's probably got to live up to. It's up to him. No, 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 no. no well, all, all I'm telling you is that he, the way he puts it, when he says, if it's up to me, and I think that means he's, he's trying to distance himself from commitments he made that he knows he has to live up to. That's how I take that. It doesn't, it's not <laughs> like I love it. It's not like I love that. It's just that I think that that's why I say it is, I don't see it happening. America, how, I mean, it, how, it, this is how we're being governed. The president can in theory, the president can choose to shutter the government even with spending bills in place. So this all president can do, do anything. Is, I find that not likely, to, but he could. All he has to do is throw these bills into a drawer and walk away, go to Mar-a-Lago, and knock out 36 holes. No, no, I they mean, can, those on. can be overridden by – in which case the Democrats just get even more bargaining power. You can override a, a presidential veto. So it can be done. Even a continuing resolution, if the president refuses, it vetoes it, it can be got. So good luck. It puts it puts the minority in in, in a position of power. The question is whether or not the president, a if if uh, Ryan and McConnell have already built that protection in for themselves, which means vulnerable Democrats, I'm going to guess, uh, particularly in the Senate are part of the bargain to make sure the government doesn't shut down, uh, which is good for them. And Paul Ryan has, has a few Democratic backers that he, there's, some, there's some spending built in for them as well. Right. If they're counting votes, that it's there to be had to circumvent the president. The question is, still, is the president going to do something crazy? Yeah, well, we 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 got we got off my we got off my momentum here around the horn. Yes or no? Alan Moore, government shutdown. Yes or no? No. Dan Lipner. Maybe. <laughs> Admiral Ken. I, I go with Dan on that one. Maybe Paul Manafort this, made a deal. Paul this, Manafort this, made a deal. Um, uh, you know, I I it just uh, Amorosa still got some more stuff to come out. Um, you know, maybe. Actually, that's the question. Does the special prosecutor? Does his office shut down with the government shutdown? Does he still get funded? He's special, he yes. He's special, yes. No, uh, don't know. Don't know the answer to that question. All right, we got about seven minutes left uh, here in the show. Uh, I do want to bring on uh, uh, our producer Audrey Howerton. Audrey, are you there? Hello, everybody. Hello, Audrey. Hi. Audrey. Hello. Audrey. Uh, it, Hello. Whoa, Audrey is broadcasting from a undisclosed paddock in upstate New York. Uh, Audrey, we have been doing the parachute pool, 
And we have had limited success in that, although people enjoy this segment. Uh, I do want to do the parachute pool, but I do want to start off another bet here, uh, a, a friendly wager of no monetary value, because that would be illegal in the District of Columbia. And I want to know who wrote the New York Times op-ed. So right now I want you to record who we think wrote the op-ed, because everybody's certain this is not going to go the way of Deep Throat in Watergate. Probably by the end of the year, we'll know who wrote it. Um, that being said, I'm going to start with Alan Moore. Alan Moore, who is your vote? Who wrote the New York Times anonymous op-ed? Yeah, I, I, I have, have no earthly idea. I'm not going to guess. Really? Oh, and come I, on. You're and, but I will say guess. this. But, I, but I'll say this. I don't think we'll know by the end of the year. I think we will. I think we will. So you're not even going to take a guess? No. Oh. No. Too many, too many candidates. Too many candidates. If you want Which me to one? take a guess, you've got to come up with that question a little earlier. So. Oh, Alan, oh, Alan Moore's bailing out. Dan Lipner, who do you think? Oh, I think it's somebody who's vested in the Republican Party long term and their own and or their own political interests. So it's one of two names. Uh, choice one is Nikki Haley. Choice two is Elaine Chow. Wow, interesting. Admiral Ken. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, because that's the only way a good a preacher's daughter can sleep at night. <laughs> uh, you know who I think it is? I think it's White House counsel, Don McGahn. I still think it's Don McGahn who wrote it. Just my thought. You're not even going to take a swipe at this. You're not even going to put a name out there, Alan. No, I, w- I was thinking about McGahn, but you've taken him. and, and I. But I, it, no, I don't see – for me, I don't <laughs> – it's okay to talk about people who are going to leave, but but to to I'm just not comfortable with. Hey, I don't have an instinctive feel, so rather than just pull down a name and say, "Oh, it must be John Kelly," oh, um, no. it, it must I mean, be uh, John Bolton, oh, you know, whoever. It's it, I just don't have a feel for it. Um, I do think it's somebody that's their political future. I do think it's somebody in the in in the White House, not not in one of the agencies like Elaine. So I don't. See it being a cabinet secretary. Yeah, I, anyway. I tend to agree with you. I tend to agree with you. Okay. Uh, that being said, it is now time for golden parachute time. Uh, since it is the three of us, we will get back into the into the scheme of things. Unfortunately, Laura Chavez and Sharmila Charlie will not have a vote. Theirs will carry over. Uh, Audrey, who do we have from carryover? Do you even have that record? Oh, I do, and it was all the way back on August fourteenth. Wow. Okay. So going way back, Sharmila had Sarah Huckabee. Ken, you had Stephen Miller. Dan, you had Linda McMahon. Alan, yours is from even further back in July, and you had John Kelly. Laura had Kristen Nielsen. And Justin, you had Jeff Sessions. Okay. None of us have won that. Uh, let's, let's go through Alan Moore. I'll give you first dibs. Who do you got? No, let's go with Kellyanne Conway just to keep the marriage together. Here we go. Kellyanne going to be the first to drop out. Dan Lipner. 
I'm feeling the Holy Spirit because Ken has let me back, let me led me back back down that road. I'm gonna say go back to my girl Sarah Huckabee Sanders. There we go, Ken, Admiral Ken, Jeff Sessions. Really? Uh, Alabama want Alabama wants him to come home. They're not happy. Oh darn it! Ah, uh, you, you you grabbed mine. Darn it! Um, you grabbed him from me last time, so I thought I beat you a bunch this time. That's true. All right. Uh, I think I think um, I think Raj Shah, the deputy communications director, he's next. That's my pick. That being said, the guy that, uh, the, the, guy that the president never talks to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's that too. Uh, on behalf of uh, our producer. Uh, Audrey Howerton, Admiral Ken Caradine, the Honorable Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Sharmla Achari, Laura Chavez. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. You can follow us on our website at www.backroompolitics.org, where you can find from the cutting room floor, the daily recap of all things political put out by our very own Audrey Howerton. You can also get the RSS feed. Also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. You can also follow us on Twitter at backroompolitic. And you can also download us on your favorite podcasting and streaming services such as Google Podcasts, iTunes, Tune in radio, and obviously you can download it directly from our website off of our Blog Talk Radio player. You can also hit me up, Justin, at backroompolitics.org, if you have any questions or fan mail. Hey, have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. This is Backroom Politics. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.